Hello. We're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. For many people, reading the Bible is like taking a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, tipping out the contents onto a table and throwing away the box lid, picking up a piece of the jigsaw and going, what the heck is that? Where does that fit? And for many people, that's how reading the Bible is. They pick it up, they look at it, they go, I don't know it. If you've had any interaction with the Bible, you will know that it contains many stories. Stories have been used over time to pass information from one generation to the next. The Bible contains stories simple enough for a child to read and yet deep enough to engage scholars. Far from being fanciful tales, the Bible contains stories that reveal some of the mysteries of the world we live in and its creator. Tonight, Dr. Corbett begins a series titled The Eight Greatest True Stories in the Bible. Let's join Dr. Corbett as we start at the beginning, the true story of how everything began. So what we're actually going to look at is the eight greatest true stories in the Bible. This is going to be an eight-part series, and we're starting today. But in order to start today, I want to start with, and this might come as a surprise to you, talking to people who know nothing about the Bible. And to do that, I'm going to make a a couple of points here that I hope help you who've never read the Bible, you know nothing about the Bible, you know really nothing about Christianity, and that you might see that these eight stories are probably the most important stories in the Bible. And these eight important stories will help anyone to understand the whole story of the Bible. That's my aim over these next eight sessions. Today, we're, we're going to look at how everything began. That's our opening story. That's where the Bible itself opens. But I need to tell you a little bit of something about the Bible itself. I want you to realize, firstly, that we're using the word stories very deliberately. These are not once upon a time stories. These are true stories that we're going to look at. But you need to know something about the stories in the Bible. Firstly, this is a a Bible. This is an an example of a Bible. This is leather. For me, it's leather because most of my paperback Bibles and things and even books, if I use them a lot, they wear out. So manufacturers have figured out if you make it out of leather, um, it's going to last longer. So I, I use this one. This is a relatively new one because if you've ever been in my office, you'll see I've got a, a shelf where I've got pages that are falling apart on Bible and I've worn them out and, and the leather's worn through and it's, 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 I usually have them for years. And then they get worn out, as you would expect, because I, I guess a, a carpenter is going to, you know, wear out a hammer and wear out a saw and preachers should wear out Bibles. That's how it works. So I, I want you to understand that this word Bible comes from a word, a Greek word, which is the Greek word biblos, which is, which is Greek for the book. So it's the book. Ho, biblos, the book. And that's all the word Bible means. Biblos comes from that Greek word. So when we talk about the Bible, it, we're really talking about the book. That's what it is. The Bible's also comprised of stories. It's comprised actually of a series of stories. And if you know anything about that word series, it, it means that it, it follows an order. It follows a sequential order. And, and there is a sequential order to the stories in the Bible. So the Bible is comprised of stories. You might think, well, aren't all religious books? No. In fact, they're not. The, the Quran is not a story. The Quran 
isn't even arranged sequentially, although it has a first part and a second part, depending on whether it was based in Medina or Mecca. And you could read it and get quite confused because it's, it's, it's out, of, out of its sequential chronological order, at least. And there's no stories in it. There's little allusions to things that are in the Bible. And we had, a couple of years ago, we had Dr. Mark Dury here, who actually did his doctorate on how the Quran doesn't quite accurately represent the stories of the Bible. So the Bible is unique. It's stories. These stories in the Bible are simple enough for any child to enjoy. They're wonderful stories. Some of these stories are awesome. I used to love there's stories in there that I, I just loved as a kid, particularly Samson. I just I was always a runt of a kid. Not now, of course, I've bulked out a bit now, but but back in the day I was I just thought, man, here's this Samson guy. There's not much to look at, and yet he could, you know, he was he could rip rip a lion's mouth open. And I thought, man, I was a little kid, I'm thinking, no, I'd love that'd be awesome. And then the stories not only simple enough for a child to enjoy, but they're deep enough for a dedicated scholar to dedicate the rest of their life to understanding. I recently was listening to Dr. Michael S. Heiser, and he did his doctoral program, his doctoral studies, PhD, in one, into one word in the Bible, and that was the word Elohim, which is the, one of the Hebrew words generally designated to God and he 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 spent six seven years just studying this word and it's quite amazing he ended up writing a book called the unseen realm really really good anyway one of the world's leading scholars but there are parts of the bible and so this is if you have read the bible and thought no I don't get that I don't understand it I want you to hear today that's okay that's actually that's what's going to happen and it's, it's going to happen because there are parts of the Bible that have actually deliberately and intentionally been written with a great deal of obscurity. Obscurity meaning it's not immediately obvious. It's not that it can't be understood. It's just that it's not immediately obvious what it's talking about. Here's a thought. If, if you know the, the story of the Bible, let me just sort of jump ahead a bit. But the Bible actually says this, and I'm going to read the Apostle Paul, who was one of the early leaders of the Christian movement. And, and he said, if the powers, these, these spiritual forces at work in the world, and the Bible makes that assumption that there are spiritual forces in the world. And, and he said, if the spiritual forces of darkness and evil, who actually orchestrated the death of Jesus Christ, if they could have known, and by the way, they knew the Bible really well. And we'll see when we get to the story about Jesus that he encountered one of these creatures from the forces of darkness who quoted the Bible to him. So there's no doubt they, they knew the Bible. But the Apostle Paul says this, they didn't understand it. In fact, they didn't understand it because if they had understood the Bible, they would never have put Jesus Christ to death. Can you imagine... The devil, Satan, going, let's kill Jesus because then he will triumph over us and we'll be vanquished and we'll lose. Let's do it. Paul says it this way, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers, these are the forces of evil, none of the rulers of this age understood this. These people knew the Bible. They quoted the Bible, but they didn't get it because the Bible 
is written, was written, intentionally, obscurely, in parts. Intentionally. None of them understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because that became their downfall and sealed their doom. So this tells us that if you're reading the Bible and you're going, no, I don't get that. I just don't get that. And, and one of the things I do in the daily Bible readings that are on YouTube, where I've done 366 videos now, is, is point out that for many people, reading the Bible is like taking a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, tipping out the contents onto a table and throwing away the box lid, forever gone, never to be retrieved, picking up a piece and go, of the jigsaw and going, what the heck is that? Where does that fit? And for many people, that's how reading the Bible is. They pick it up, they look at it, they go, oh, i got no idea. But if you can begin to see the whole picture, but you need the box lid to see the picture and you can piece it together, that's when you can begin to understand it. There were times, just to, I guess, reassure you, there were times when even Christ's followers didn't get what the Bible was teaching. For those who've read the end of the Gospel of Luke, you, you read of two men and it names them who were walking to this place called Emmaus um, and the, the road to Emmaus and they were, they were going into Jerusalem and, and it's, it says that they were, they were then met with Christ, Jesus, the one who had been raised from the dead, but they didn't know it yet. They'd heard reports and it says that as they were walking, they said to this who they thought was a stranger, Jesus, and the Bible says that he had obscured their understanding from realising who he was. That they said, uh, what do you mean what are we talking about? We're talking about what everyone else is talking about. Jesus, the one who started this whole movement that's now just come to a grinding halt because he's dead. Although some people reckon he's alive. And Jesus talking with these two men says to them, don't you understand what the Bible said about me? That I should be born of a virgin, live a perfectly sinless life, suffer brutally, be killed and raised from the dead. And as he began to say this and he pointed out the scriptures from the old part of the Bible, the Bible says their eyes were open and their hearts began to burn with excitement because now they could see what they'd never seen before. That's called illumination, by the way. And I hope maybe you get a little bit of illumination today. So the Bible's not as straightforward as we might like it to be. There are times when it's just a little bit obscure. That's why we benefit from scholars who dedicate their lives to understanding the Bible and looking into its context and looking into how language works. And not all of us have the time to do that. It's one of the reasons why I want to encourage pastors to do that so that when people join together on a Sunday to look at God's word, there's more than, it's not a lecture. I'm not trying to lecture you today. I want you to understand God and his word and so that we might see this. So that's why we benefit from reading commentaries. It's why we benefit from reading books of really good scholars. We're going to have a look at this opening story and to understand this, to understand in the beginning, which is the opening words of the Bible, we need to understand that stories, Bible stories, they were passed down orally 
generation to generation and they were very very careful in how they did it very careful I, I want to um I want to just explain to you something about this so let me back up a bit here Michael come on out this represents the Bible if you were to eat it Michael it wouldn't taste very nice because because it's got this brown rusky sort of stuff on it and if we just take it take this onion at, at its surface level like many people take the bible it's like uh what are people raving about this thing for it's like brown and dry and rusky and would anyone like a piece it's what is this and this is how many people have encountered the bible dry and crusty and just that's it that's that's what who wants to who wants to get into that but Michael I need you to I'm going to stand back because Kim said stand back I want you to cut it right through the middle please so we can see the segments of the onion please no 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 that'll do thank you all right all right just show that Everyone, can you see that? Well, can you imagine what you're seeing? <laughs> yeah, we, we could just show and tell. Everyone just want to pass this around, get a good whiff of it. <laughs> Kim said, don't put it near your eyes. <laughs> but this, this onion is like the Bible in many respects. We could engage it just on the outside level, or we could take the time to go deeper and you end up with something that flavours dishes in a... I, I actually like onions. No, I, love I love it. The, French the, onion soup. French onion soup, absolutely. You make some of the best French onion soup I've ever had, Michael. Thank you so much. That'll do. Thank you. For those that don't get onions... Oh, man, I've got onion juice dripping on me now. Is that a problem? Kim is not a fan of onions. <laughs> anyway... But Kim is a fan of babushka dolls. She got this one in Moscow. This is a babushka doll. Has anyone not seen a babushka doll? Oh, Ada, you haven't seen it? Well, this is just for you. Ada, this is a babushka doll. They, they, can actually, they actually can come much bigger than this. But this is what happens. Inside the babushka doll is a, guess what? Babushka doll. And then, Ada, this is going to surprise you. But inside this babushka doll... There is another babushka doll. Oh no, there's more. Inside this babushka doll is an onion. No. There is another babushka doll. And inside this babushka doll, there is another babushka doll. And inside this babushka... No, there's no more. That's it. And the whole point... The whole whole illustration I'm trying to show you here is that you can, you can just go to the surface level of the Bible and not take the time to get through the layers and it will just not do what it's meant to do. So as we look at this story, I want to tell you the story. As I've mentioned, these stories were passed down orally and then eventually they were written down and this particular story that we're going to look at now 
was written down sometime around about 1400 BC or so. As we go through and I tell these stories, I'll, I'll make it clear to you that uh, the author of this, there was one author, he also designed for the story to have not just the original author, but sometimes editors. He used editors to, to do it, to write his story. So this story penned around 1400 BC. Well, it's not that long ago, actually, as far as human history goes. And this story starts off with these words. In the beginning, there was nothing but God. He then created, this God created his heavenly family because he was always from the moment there was never was a moment when he was not but he has always been father and he created these creatures and we read about them later on in the bible they're called seraphim and cherubim and archangels and and i'm going to call them angelic creatures although that kind of if you're into hallmark greeting cards that kind of gives a misrepresentation of what these creatures are like because the word angel is actually not a creature the word angel is simply a job description it doesn't actually describe the creature and these creatures we read in scripture some of them look like humans some of them can look like humans some of them are able to enter into this dimension of time and space and take on human form some of them we read later on can actually eat a meal they can engage with people they have obviously the organs to digest food and then some of them we will see a bit later on were able to do other things that they weren't authorized to do so these angelic creatures the amazing thing is that we we have records of some some of their names and so we know from what we read in the accounts of this story is that there are not billions of them there are billions of billions of billions of them and God named every one of them individually pretty amazing right from the outset the opening words of the story in the beginning God don't really do justice to who we're about to read about in the beginning God but now I hope you've got a picture of beginning a picture of who this God might be he created these beings which I'm calling his family his his dimension is it not like our dimension it's we're going to call it heaven in his heavenly dimension he had his created family so these these creatures individually named God then set about to create this material realm this realm the universe, we might call it, includes things like atomic particles. When I went to primary school, I was told that an atom was the smallest particle there was in the universe. And then by the time I hit high school, I was told, no, there's actually things within the atom itself. And then after I finished high school, I was being told, actually, within those electrons, protons and neutrons, there's things again. And we get into what's called subatomic particles and he created the galaxies the stars the comets quasars and nebula sometimes we look up at the night sky and up until fairly recently we thought they were galactic dust and with the development of technology 
we were able to build telescopes that tell us they're not, that's not galactic dust. They're entire galaxies clustered together. This universe that he created is vast, absolutely vast. Then God waited for the light from these vast objects in deep space to reach as far as a far-flung galaxy where he had designed what Carl Sagan called a small blue dot. And that small blue dot we know as Earth. This marked the end of phase one of God's creation. Then God focused on this small blue dot, this important small blue dot. And he established atmosphere around it. He established its molten liquid metal core, which is pretty hot, Jeanette to give it a magnetic field that enabled it to build up a force that would protect it against things like meteors and the like. And God established the gaseous composition of the earth as it cooled, all the heat that was coming from it. He orchestrated that it would be, before the atmosphere was formed, it needed gases to come in from deep space. And they came in and they bombarded Earth. And we see today evidence of the craters all across Earth. But importantly, it brought things to Earth like hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and certain minerals that form what we call air. Air is something like 70% nitrogen, about 20-something percent oxygen and, and, a, and, a, and a few other gases as well. And as this gas mix settled, this marked the end of phase two of God's creation. Then God established oceans and river systems and he formed dry land as distinct from these things. That enabled him to create microbial life. He created life. Something scientists today still cannot do. This enabled him to form vegetation. Microbial life, vegetation, both are interdependent on each other. That then enabled him, with those things being established, to create sea creatures which are also dependent on these things. And then God established the end of that phase, phase three of creation. And then God established, I need to, in between phase four, let me tell you what happened. God established the moon in orbit around the earth to stabilize earth's rotation the stabilization of earth's rotation marked the beginning of earth experiencing 24-hour day periods this then marked the end of phase four of creation earth's atmosphere its rotation day and night was formed then God 
created bird life, insects and bird life. And God ordered sea life to be created. And he caused the earth to teem with sea life and bird life, insects and microbial life, including mosquitoes. All for a good purpose. And this ended phase five of his creation. Then God created small bodied animals and large bodied animals. And then, having done that at just the right time, God created mankind. He created mankind unique. He created mankind as man and woman. And this marked the end of phase six of his creation. Now, I said to you, this is a true story. So how do we know it's true? How do we know this account of creation is true? Well, firstly, the sciences, which means knowledge, the knowledge that we get from geology confirms it. The knowledge that we get from zoology confirms it. That is the study of animals, not going to a zoo. The study of botany, plants, vegetation. The study of astronomy. The study of astronomy confirms it as well. We now know that the universe, as described in Genesis 1, seems to have come about in that sequential order. And if you remember Dr. Hugh Ross being here, he says this, when he was not a Christian, he was looking at all the different religious viewpoints, all their stories. And he said it was only the Christian story, the Bible, the Judeo-Christian story, that corresponded to what we know from science. So astronomy, it corresponds to biology and the mystery still the mystery of biology that life itself is not necessarily a biological problem it equates to anthropology and no matter what your view of the origin of man no matter how you regard that we all have to agree when it comes to the origin of the universe the origin of life on earth and the arrival of man on earth mankind on earth Mankind is a fairly recent arrival, measured in thousands of years, not millions. This corresponds to what we know. In fact, with the Human Genome Project, we can now trace all of humanity back to one woman and one man. Scientists refer to this couple as mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam. So, what do we learn from this story? I told you that this was written around about 1400 BC. This story had been told eons before, but what do we learn? What we learn is that when Moses, who probably penned this story, describes all of these things being created, he was listing all of the things that the Egyptians who had captured 
Moses and his people and had enslaved them, he now tells a story completely different to the story that the Egyptians had of the God who was superior to all of their gods. That's interesting and we'll look at that in one of the next stories. We see also from this story that the story of the Bible clearly tells us that God is the creator. He's the designer. He's the orchestrator of all things. And he's the lawgiver. And I don't just mean moral laws, I mean the laws of physics, which it says in Jeremiah 31 and verse 35 or so, where it says he's fixed the laws that govern this universe. That's what we learn from this story. And if you have never heard anything about God and his word, I hope now you've become a little bit more acquainted. Would you please stand? We're going to sing to this God who created everything. And then I'm going to come back. I'm going to give you an invitation. And I'm going to close in prayer. This story that we've looked at doesn't start with once upon a time. It's a story that has stood the test of time. It's a story that explains and sets the stage for describing how the world is the way it is. And as we're going to look at these next seven stories, we're going to see that it's actually one story that makes sense. And perhaps you're aware that there's something missing in your life. Perhaps you're aware of the ache that you have, longing for meaning, because we were created to be in relationship with the God who's described as Father. He created mankind, you and I, as special creations, to have the capacity that no animal has, the capacity to think and reason, to aspire, to dream, the capacity to take abstract concepts and see meaning in them which enables language and literature to take place something animals can't do and he's done all that that he might have a relationship with you and if you don't have that relationship you are not a million miles away from it you were just one prayer a prayer that says God I want to know you please forgive me come into my life and help me to live for you I need you you pray a prayer like that I guarantee you your life will be different from this point forward and as we go through these stories it'll all make sense so Father I pray now Lord that we might we might know the love of God we might know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and we might know fellowship with the Holy Spirit In Jesus' name, and everyone said... As we've heard tonight, the story of creation was penned around 1400 BC, the details of which are not refuted but supported by many of the scientific disciplines. More from Dr Corbett next week with The Origin of Mankind. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.